Welcome to Talking Wyndham, your weekly insight into the people who make our city surprising, fascinating, vibrant and interesting. Talking Wyndham is an initiative of the Committee for Wyndham. All the latest news and events are on our website and Facebook page. Hi and welcome to the Talking Wyndham podcast. My name's Kevin Hillier. Another fascinating episode coming up today with a most interesting man. And a reminder about the Committee for Wyndham, their Facebook page and their website. You can check out all the details of the programs they've held in the past and all the programs they have coming up in the future as we uh, head into different times for 2021. A combination once again of the uh, the virtual uh, way we go about things and uh, the face-to-face uh, interaction that we're now able to do a little bit more of and hopefully more of uh, into the future in the future weeks and months of, uh, of 2021. Today, though, you'll meet uh, Dr. Graham Meehan. Now, uh, Graham was a part of the team that established the Milking Research Centre at Werribee, uh, and he'll tell us exactly when that was, but it's a long time ago now. He's retired these days, uh, but his work in the, uh, in the milking research area and in some other very quirky little areas, I think you'll find absolutely fascinating in this edition of the Talking Wyndham podcast. Welcome to the Talking Wyndham podcast, Graham. It's lovely to have a chat with you. How are you? Well, I'm fine, thank you. We've uh, we've survived the uh, the lockdowns so far, and by keeping a low profile and uh, and uh, looking after each other. You have a fascinating history with the uh, the city of Wyndham or Werribee, as it was when you first uh, came into the area uh, way way back uh, in uh, in the early 1970s to establish. Uh, uh, the uh, what what has turned out to be one of the biggest uh, sort of uh, I guess scientific parts of uh, of the city of Wyndham. Uh, that's true. Yes, uh, we uh, we've actually was uh, started off here in uh, nineteen sixty five. Oh, okay, and uh, yeah, that that stage the research farm um, complex, the state research farm, was really um, primarily a. Uh, a place for plant breeding um, and a centre of excellence for animal breeding, in particular animal insemination. But there was also then a building uh, on the place, an institute, the Gilbert Chandler Institute of Dairy Technology and a state and the uh, Animal Research Institute too. So it, it just was a small complex in those early days and uh, um, we lived um, out at near Mount Cottrell, out on the on the dry country and yeah. on the grassy plains. They were then. <laughs> um, yes, it has it has changed immensely over those that time. You mentioned uh, that, uh, and that then became uh, the establishment which you're involved in of the Milking Research Centre at uh, at Werribee, because most of your working life has been uh, in in the milking research area. How did that? How did, how did you get into that as a as a vocation in life? <laughs> well, I um, I was working at that stage as a young sort of cadet with the Department of Agriculture, Victoria, and it fairly quickly dawned on me that to have a, um, a better control over my destiny, I, I needed to specialise in something that, uh, um, and the offer, the chance came up to work on dairy cows, and uh, at that stage in around Werribee, there were. Uh, uh, 44 dairy farms um, in Werribee South, oh, wow. and a few more just uh, scattered on the on the um, um, in Bacchus Marsh, um, but that was it. And uh, so 
Uh, I, I established the Mooka Research Centre in, uh, well, I suppose, 1966 uh, at, at the farm, and uh, it grew from there, and it became, uh, uh, it developed a sort of a world reputation for uh, research and training in uh, uh, milking, mastitis, milk quality, um, labour efficiency on dairy farms. So much of much most of my life's been working with dairy cows, but with stints on the way through of working with, uh, um, we're running the Food Research Institute when it started off, and uh, and then later a, a, a time of working on biosensors in New Zealand. But so yes, I've been I've been fortunate, Kevin, to have had uh, uh, the opportunity to uh, do research that I like. It's the sort of it's the interface between a uh, a milking machine between a machine and and a, and an animal, yeah. where the teat cups are put on the cow, and it's not just an animal, any animal. It's a it's a, a female animal, and it, it's um, it's you need with young just like any young mums, you you need sort of quiet care of um, cows. And other lactating animals as they're initiating lactation. So a lot of it was uh, interesting, sort of animal behavioural stuff to try and to try and get cows to uh, um, help in the milking process by walking in by themselves in a calm um, uh, environment and look after them like you'd look after any young mum yeah. um, to try and help her. Because you require the willing cooperation of an animal. Yeah, yeah, yeah exactly right. And it, I mean, the, the end result for city kids is they walk into a, a supermarket and grab a uh, you know a, a liter of milk, and that's that's what they see. But uh, the intricacies of, of what you're talking about, and you talked about mastitis, and you talked about uh, you know the care and uh, and that of the, of the there's a reason why cow A produces X amount of liters and cow B produces only you know Y amount of meter, uh, liters. That's true. Yes, yes, and it, it's got a lot to do with genetics. It's got a whole lot to do with feeding. It's got an, an awful lot more to do with uh, um, the management of the herd and the management of individual cows. So, uh, yeah, that, that goes together to make uh, uh, life on dairy farms um, appear simple, but uh, behind it there's an awful lot of uh, complex um, technological and behavioural um, and milk quality type support. Yeah, and and I imagine uh, an astronomical leap in uh, IT and technology advancements since 1965. Well, that's true. Yes, well, the the two major sort of uh, um, leaps forward were the development of the mechanisation of de- of farm, not just dairy farming but farming. Yeah. After the Second World War, when there was such a labour shortage. Around around Europe and and uh, Australia and New Zealand too, but that, and so that that uh, greatly improved the uh, um, the amount, the number of litres produced per hour of labour on the dairy farm, um, it, astonishingly. Well, now the the second leap forward came in the uh, starting in the nineteen nineties when uh, um, automation uh, came along and IT and automation. And that has that has meant uh, uh, another even bigger um, leap forward in the uh, the way farming is done these days, and uh, 
in the the first um, um, automatic milking machines, the voluntary milking machines, where cows choose the time they come into milk. Yeah. That that came started off in 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 Holland in about the nineteen nineties, and uh, now something around or thirty percent of cows in of, of herds in Denmark, for example, are uh, milked uh, by automatic systems. Um, and uh, I've been involved with some of those in New Zealand, uh, the first ones there, where, just to give you an idea of uh, the the sort of life changes on the dairy farms, uh, the, mil- the milking staff would leave the place on a Friday night and no one would go near the place till Monday morning yeah. unless unless there was a, a, an automatic alarm in one of their homes, whoever was on duty that weekend, to come in. But you see, the cows would be milked, the milk would be cooled, the, uh, the system would be cleaned in between the tanker pickup, and uh, that's it's not to say that um, when you buy a dairy farm and put an automatic system in, that the cows are going to... Uh, uh, the, the labour's got nothing to do. You can't sort of say, I'm going to buy a dairy farm in Gippsland and, and put an automatic system in it, then I'm going to uh, go and uh, live up in uh, uh, on the Sunshine Coast. <laughs> it doesn't work like that. Yeah. You, have, you, change, you change from being a, a, a farmer in muddy boots to one sitting a lot of the time in front of computers. And uh, that, that, that's immensely appealing to... Uh, a lot of younger folk who are computer savvy, and uh, and still want to get have have the have the life on a farm. So it uh, that'll that'll happen in Australia too. It, it's happening slowly, um, but when the economics uh, get to the stage where investment of capital becomes uh, substantially cheaper than um, buying more more labour and finding good labour. Then the change will happen quickly. Yeah, and that obviously you change from the the milking research centre into, as you mentioned, the the food research institute, which opened there sort of in that late part of the eighties, early nineties. In Wurundi. that's true. Yes, that's right. Um, well, when by the, when the dairy farms disappeared, the last of the dairy farms disappeared in uh, from the Werribee area by about. Oh, 1980s, I suppose, maybe, maybe uh, thereabouts. I just can't remember the exact sort of time. But when that happened, uh, uh, my, my research centre here um, was moved down down to Ellen Bank in, in near Warrigal, another another in a, in a better farming environment. Um, so, and that's when I uh, was uh, reluctantly, I have to say, pressured into taking over the old Gilbert Chander Institute of Dairy Technology yeah. as director of that. And uh, um, I say reluctantly because it had such a, a terrible uh, um, um, balance, budget. I think 90, when I started there, I think about 92 or 3% of the entire budget allocation from the Victorian government went in, went in salaries. It just left... Uh, um, a pathetic amount to uh, um, to do any sort of anything useful in the terms of research and development for well, that sort of budget. Yeah. So anyway, um, with a couple of senior uh, um, scientists at the time, we lobbied the government to uh, 
to transform us into a food research institute. And uh, that happened in the late uh, sort of 1987 uh, or something like that. And, you know, immediately we got, uh, when, when it was made, the change was announced, we were given about half a million bucks from the government to make it happen. Uh. We got requests to help with uh, um, algal blooms on on the on some of the estuaries around the bay, with um, how to make uh, package uh, abalone for shipment to Japan, uh, with how to make uh, how to do taste tests on oranges and things. We didn't have a damn clue about it. <laughs> <laughs> well, you're innovative, obviously. To have, so, I mean, well, still going today in a, in a form as the uh, as the food as food innovations Australia. So it, it survived all that. That's well. That's that's the. Is it went through a, a whole lot of different sort of interact inter interact. Um, what's the word I'm thinking for iterations? It is, yes. Yeah. It got, got rebranded. First, we set it up as the Food Research Institute, and then it became uh, Food Science Australia, and now it's. Uh, I'm sorry, it went oh, food the Food Science Institute for a while, and now Food Science Australia and Food Innovation Australia. Is the latest, yeah. and it's it's an amazing complex. But so is the, look, so is the whole research farm. You know, yeah. uh, that that land now. If you you take a look at say VU, because they set it off. Their first campus here was essentially on food food science, and uh, now if you look at their website, you find that um, they've they've got uh, um, major VU's got major research centres in food science water treatment, uh, biomedical science, fire, fire safety. Then there's the vet school and hospital. And then there's, uh, there's VU Polytech and uh, trade campus with civil construction and work safety. And the list goes on. Yeah. And, and there's the Melbourne, uh, the University of Notre Dame's got a campus here too, Ag- agri-food technology. The point that makes about all this is that there's a huge resource and it's largely untapped source of specialist knowledge, which could be which could be uh, harvested or harnessed for potential to help with future planning and development of Wyndham. Now that's that shouldn't be underestimated. The the amount of intellectual um, 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 capability and experience and expertise on that campus. Um, the uh, the sad thing, I think, is that the education city complex Didn't sort of happen. fell over. Yeah. And in a very sort of murky way, I think. I, I reckon I still got a bit certain about all that. It was, uh, there was sort of, um, each side, I think, blames the other for, for why it didn't get, didn't get a, a head of steam about it. But let's be honest; it all comes back down to money in the end. And is that is that the missing ingredient here in in turning that intellectual knowledge that you're talking about into into something uh, usable and something profitable? Well, it's 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 partly that, but it's also vision, Kevin. Yeah, true. It's, yeah. it's having having uh, the right sort of champions to uh, to push these concepts forward, and uh, that's that's been sadly lacking, I think. In uh, in a lot of our recent sort of council um, decisions, I think, and 
it, the sort of concept of uh, going along with the education city is to uh, build, have a, a, a huge housing complex on the other side of the multi-bypass on that government land. And I think um, if, that's, if that's the alternative land use being planned to make that vast area into a big bedroom suburb for Melbourne, it's going to be very profitable for the state government. It's a very depressing outlook for Werribee. Yeah. I, I reckon we can we can do a whole lot better than that. Yeah, Kevin. As long as as long as we can find a champion high enough in the either the government or the the council who can who's got the the smarts and the network to pull all that together and make something happen. That um, that whole area around where the old um, dairy farms used to be, around the the sort of K Road area and uh, all that that that's a that's a wonderful part of Worby that a lot of people never see. You're talking about the food bowl down there. Yeah, so, yeah. Yes, it is. And uh, but look, they're, they're in trouble too, Kevin. The the, uh, the water supply for our farmers here is uh, um, uh, in many ways not fit for purpose. Yeah. Yeah, the salt cotton when the when it was first offered, uh, uh, well, partly because of the limited amount of water coming down the Werribee River, which was the main traditional source of water for it, and um, and that's been of course been uh, now having to be split between uh, urban use on the way down and industrial use on the way down and in Werribee too, so the farmers get uh, what's left really, but that gets. Uh, um, because that gets pretty uh, limited, um, they've been offered a chance to buy recycled water from the from the uh, from Melbourne Water, um, um, the big old Border Works farm. Yeah, but but that's that's very high in salt content, and they were first promised no more than a thousand uh, parts uh, equi- uh, salt equivalents. It's the millisiemens they call or micro siemens um, of of salt, and that's uh, almost never happened with the, with the even with the shanty water. Mm. It's often been up around eighteen hundred parts, and sometimes it's up in the high two thousand parts. So it's not the long. It's, it's a bit like, um, um, in my view. Um, Spraying the the the, the uh, farms with salt water, yeah, and that is in the long term is a terrible um, um, fate for the farming farmers of Werribee South. They have um, they unlike so many other irrigation areas around the state, they have limited um, um, quantities of water available, um, poor quality often with the salt content and some heavy metals. And uh, it's expensive, so uh, their, their their long-term future is by no means assured. It could our food bowl could turn into a dust bowl. Yeah, yeah, and and, and, and we've had we've had the uh, the ongoing threat always of you know the generations changing and it finishing up in being a, a, another housing development. That's right. Yes, that would be a, and that would be a tragedy. Um, so. There are solutions. Again, they take money. Yeah. But you see, a lot of the problem is the early days of, of high industrial development up around West Melbourne, Sunshine, Footscray, that sort of area, 
that's where all the that's where all the uh, um, in, industry produce, which some of which produce enormous amounts of salt. It all comes down the uh, uh, the now the underground tunnel to uh, uh, Melbourne Water, and it's uh, they haven't got it's apparently not economic to to put in a diesel plant to to provide decent sort of good, good enough water. For watering for watering vegetable crops. I think diesel uh, a diesel plant has been a dirty word in this state for a number of years now, hasn't it? <laughs> oh, yes, hasn't it ever? <laughs> <laughs> Gee whiz, there's some uh, there's some interesting uh, conversations we had about that. Hey, one thing I did want to ask you about, and looking at your CV, um, you uh, you made a milking machine for mice. Now I've got to ask you: Is is uh, the, what happened with that, and what why did you do it, and what happened with it? <laughs> well. Uh, the, the start was um, the, from visit, making a visit to the National Cancer Institutes in Maryland, Washington, yep. Maryland, uh, USA. Um, and they had, in the mid-60s, they had been um, um, milking a, a little herd of mice or flock of mice, whatever you call them, um, and not a plague of mice. Anyway, yeah, fortunately, but, yes. <laughs> yeah, t- 10 or 20 mice a day for the past uh, few years, for about three years or so, and that that was harvesting what they call large quantities of mouse milk. And uh, they said they'd made this milking machine for them, and uh, and it, they could milk a mouse out in about 10 or 15 minutes compared with the old method of hand-milking the mice. <laughs> okay, yeah. My mind, the, the visual pictures that are going through my head are unbelievable anyway. Well, they should be too, Kevin. Yes. I just uh, I, I said, I've just got to go and see this. Yeah. So, uh, so I went and I had a good session with those fellas. And, and they, the reason they're doing it was uh, they had at that stage a theory about the uh, possible viral transma- uh, transmission of uh, Cancer-producing agents in in mouse mammary glands. Oh wow! And so they were using using the mice um, as a, a model for for humans, and uh, and looking at possible relationship um, with um, uh, breast cancer in women. So anyway, when I came back to um, Victoria, and I sort of talked about some of these things uh, to the f- farming groups that I used to. Uh, uh, Give occasional lectures to, and uh, the story got to, back to um, um, the television program. Then the major sort of national TV thing, uh, this day tonight. Yeah, with Bill Peach was the anchor man for yeah, that. Yeah, I, I remember it well. I mean, you know him, okay, right? Well, that's it. Yeah. So anyway, they got hold of it, and they, I had uh, they got in touch and said, uh, "Can we come and can we come and uh, make a film about it?" So I said, well, I haven't got, I haven't got a mouse milk here. <laughs> well, no, we need some live footage, Graham. Come on. <laughs> so uh, I had uh, one of my techs uh, make up a little milking machine. I still got it. Um, and uh, we did the uh, – to get the to get the mice, I, I got um, people from uh, uh, CSL who had uh, lab mice in, and I got a, a bunch of lactating – Females from them, and I got a few from the vet school over the way here, and uh, 
or one of the saucer too. And I got a few wild mice too out of the haystack, which was just near my office. And and so I sort of, in the early part of that, I was having to practice leg roping these mice <laughs> to, to, uh, to hold them steady to while, we put, put, while we milked them. And uh, in the process, I got bitten by a few of these mice. Oh, and, I bet you did. But... Uh, yeah, it's easier to leg rope me a cow. I found than leg roping. <laughs> anyway, you'll, you'll leave some of this to your imagination. But anyway, so I, I, uh, I did a film on that, and that was on uh, this date of night in oh, what a late eight sixty eight, I suppose. Oh goodness and, me! Uh, yeah, and then afterwards, well, I, I had all these mice with litters in my lab at the research farm. And uh, I had a young daughter then who, who liked fiddling, and uh, so she went and opened them up and played with them, and a few of them got out of, around the lab. and, and but, So it was a bit of a nuisance, really. But at the end of it all, as soon as the filming was done, I gave all the mouse, all the mice and their litters to uh, a, a pet, a people who were running a pet stall at the one of those early Weerama um uh, fates in Werribee. Yeah. And, uh, but at this, pretty much at the same time, that coincided with me getting um, a curious sort of fever. A fever's a bit like malaria, two days of high temperatures and plaques on the arms, and then five days of um, normal. And the, the thing, the, the sad thing was that the, uh, the fever parts coincided with weekends. So I spent the weekend inside and in bed in a fever, and then the weeks I could okay to come to work. But uh, so uh, anyway, that got diagnosed um, by my brother actually as a as a uh, medical student as as rat bite fever. Good grief! And that's something that uh, was hasn't really been common around the, the place uh, until except since the Second World War. When when there was rat plagues because of so many corpses laying rotting in the on the army on the army battlefields, mm. and so for people that other soldiers had got bitten got rat bite fever. So I got stuck into Fairfield Hospital for for um, well, at least a month. Uh, while they wouldn't treat initially because I just had uh, it was so interesting for all the students here. They were all med students. Oh, yeah. <laughs> but ha- see, having given these mice now, these these ones at the same time, for the Wu Armour show, um, the word had to go out pretty smartly to all those people who bought those. You you better drown them or, oh. or at least make them back because we don't know whether one or more of those is infected with uh, this. Uh, the particular nasty bacteria which causes this uh, this issue. So that's, that's the link to where I'm. So you went, you went from scientist to scientific experiment fairly quickly. Well, I, I went there as a sort of uh, exhibit A. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> <laughs> hey, Graham, it's been fascinating talking to you. So, thank you so much for your time. Uh, a long time uh, in the in the Werribee area, uh, you know, from 1965 uh, when you set up the very first uh, the, the research centre down there in Werribee. Thanks so much for your time on the Talking Window podcast. It's been fascinating to have a chat. I really enjoyed it, Kevin. Thank you.
But thanks to Dr. Graham Meehan. He is a professor and, of course, a, a man who these days just relaxing, having a good time and enjoying life, but uh, still a, a very learned man in that, uh, in that area. And anyone who can come up with a milking machine for mice, he gets my vote every day of the week. Hope you've enjoyed this edition of the Talking Wyndham podcast. A reminder about previous programs. You can get them uh, on the website and the Facebook page uh, for the Committee for Wyndham. Hope you enjoyed this one. Till the next time, I'm Kevin Hillier. Take care of yourself. Thanks for listening. Talking Wyndham is an initiative of the Committee for Wyndham. All the latest news and events are on our website and Facebook page.